Yes, Mike, please. We're going to be looking primarily at Genesis chapter 50 today. I want to read for us from verses 15 through 21. So if you follow along with me. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge? What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We're your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done. The saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Have you ever noticed how certain sins follow certain families? The same behaviors manifest themselves from generation to generation. One family might drink too much, and it devastates their relationships and damages their reputation all the way to the third or fourth generation. Another family may be involved in sexual sin. The child, his father, his father's father, his father's father's father, to the fourth generation. Some families are characterized by fear, others by pride. It's their besetting sin. Well, the family that God chose to represent him as his agents of redemption, the family of Abraham, had a besetting sin, deceit. People who are afraid often use deceit. It is, to misquote the psalm heretically, a very present help in time of trouble. But people who want to control also use deceit. Now, they don't think of themselves as liars, but truth is malleable to them. It's kind of putty in their hands. They can twist it the way they need to in order to get what they want. Abraham, now remember, he's the recipient of the promise and the father of the faithful. Abraham relied on deceit more than once to protect himself and to control the situation in which he and Sarah found themselves. Specifically, he lied about his relationship to his wife. Later, his son Isaac did exactly the same thing. He even lied to the same people. I'm pretty sure they must have thought, what is wrong with you? Why do you guys keep doing this? Just tell the truth. You know, you would think that someone who has practiced in the art of deceit would recognize deceit when he sees it, but that's not the way it works. Isaac was ruefully deceived by his son Jacob. Jacob was the master of deceit. You may remember the story of how Jacob slaughtered a goat and then used it as a prop and a plan to deceive his dad. Well, then Jacob, this master of deceit, He was duped both by his father-in-law and later by his own sons. And interestingly, what did they do? They slaughtered a goat and they used it as a prop and a plan to deceive their dad. They took the blood of 
a goat and they smeared it on a coat that their father had given to their brother so that without ever actually having to speak a lie, they deceived him into thinking that their brother was dead. Deceit in Abraham's generation was passed on to Isaac and then to Jacob and then to the patriarchs. The iniquities of the fathers visited upon the children to the third and fourth generation. But that works the other way, too. When someone breaks the chain wrought by generations of sin, he or she can set a new standard for generations to come. Instead of deceit, truthfulness. Instead of fear, courage. Instead of sexual sin, respect. Instead of selfishness, love. And these things become a godly heritage to generations not yet born. Joseph, as we've seen over the last few weeks, had been using his own deceit, playing a charade with his brothers. It had been months since he first saw them in Egypt and recognized them, and probably longer than that, before he let them know who he really was. When he finally did, his brothers were in shock. And when the shock wore off, the fear set in. After what they'd done to him, they feared for their lives. But Joseph had no intention of hurting them. He reassured them with the memorable words. This is chapter 45. Don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. So then it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. Now, it took a while for the shock and fear to settle. And that only happened after Joseph gave his brothers the kiss of peace and cried with them. By the way, in this story, this is the 11th time Joseph is said to have cried. It was only after Joseph embraced them and cried over them that he and his brothers really talked. What a conversation that must have been. The brothers telling Joseph how sorry they were for what they'd done and all the damage they'd caused, begging his forgiveness, Joseph forgiving them telling them the story of his life in Egypt, the false arrest, the years in prison, the dreams, the catastrophe, the great turnaround when Pharaoh hired him as his chief of staff. Then there was his marriage, the birth of his sons, the famine relief efforts. For their part, the brothers had their own stories to tell. Their children who had been born, their spouses who had died, the purchase of land, the ongoing battle with the Hittites, I suspect Joseph was particularly interested, I would have been, to hear what they told their dad when they returned home after selling him to human traffickers from Midian. I'm sure they talked on and on, deep into the night, but the reunion didn't last long. As soon as Joseph got permission from Pharaoh to bring his family to Egypt, he sent his brothers back to Canaan to get their dad and to bring their families. He sent what amounted to moving trucks, carts, and probably oxen, loaded with provisions with them. That was in part practical. His brothers would need provisions for their journey back and then for their 70-member family to come back to Egypt. But it was also intended to be a demonstration to his dad, who had believed him dead for more than two decades, that Joseph was really alive. So Joseph sees his brothers off. He's standing out in the street waving and telling them to hurry back. And you know the last thing he said to them? Take it easy on the journey. Try to get along with each other. So the brothers begin this 250-mile or so trek back to their homes. And somewhere, I'm guessing very soon, along the way, they started thinking about what they were going to tell their dad. 
After all, two decades earlier, more than two decades, they had tricked him into thinking that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. But in about 10 days, they're going to have to look him in the face and tell him that Joseph was alive. There's a backstory to this that we need to know. And if you've read the story, you've seen it. When the brothers first deceived their dad about Joseph, they were taken off guard by his response. He fell into an inconsolable depression. They did everything that they could besides telling him the truth to cheer him up. And so did their sister. But their dad refused to be comforted. He told them he would die miserable, and he meant it. And so they not only sold Joseph into slavery, they pushed their dad into mental illness. If you've read the story, you've probably noticed how negative Joseph became, how contrary and unhappy. He wasn't the same man that he'd been when Joseph was with him. And now they were going to have to find a way to tell him that Joseph didn't die, that he'd been alive all this time. By the time the brothers got back to their dad, they were ready. They told him that Joseph was alive, but the biblical text, interestingly, does not tell us that they confessed their part in what had happened. And I don't think they did. I don't think they did because Joseph or Jacob never mentioned it afterward, which, it seems to me, is totally inconsistent with his personality if he'd really known. And I don't think Joseph ever told him either. I think he wanted to spare his aged dad any further grief. So the boy said, Dad, Dad, you'll never guess what happened. When we were in Egypt, we found Joseph. He's alive. And it's not just that. He's like Pharaoh's second in command. He's his chief advisor. He lives in this giant house, and he has a wife and two kids and a whole household staff. And you know what Jacob said? Shut up. The text plainly says he didn't believe them. So Jacob, whose name, did you realize this? You know what Jacob means? Jacob means? means deceiver. Jacob believed his sons 20-some years earlier when they lied to him, but he doesn't believe them now when they're telling him the truth. It was only when he saw all the things that Joseph sent, the wagons loaded down with provisions and clothing and money, that he was finally convinced. He must have asked his boys how Joseph survived the animal attack, which he still would have believed happened, and how he came to be in Egypt. And the boys must have said, well, you know, when you sent him up to Shechem to find us, he was captured by human traffickers and taken to Egypt. They went on to tell the whole story after that, except for their part, Now, Jacob believes that Joseph really is alive. And his decades-long depression lifts a little. And he determines to go down to Egypt and see his son. So after a brief respite, the family packs up, all 70 of them, and heads back down to Egypt. Joseph, with encouragement from Pharaoh, told them to leave all their possessions, just leave everything and come, promising them that they would have everything they needed when they got there. Jacob and all 70 members of his family are on the road in a short time, headed south and then west. They spend one night in Beersheba, which held a lot of history for Jacob. His grandfather had stayed in Beersheba and had built a place of worship there. 
His father had had a remarkable spiritual experience there. And it was from Beersheba that he set out when his own relationship with God first began. In the back of his mind, Jacob had reservations about going to Egypt, I'm sure. His grandfather went down there, and it was a disaster. His father wanted to go to Egypt, and God stopped him. And now he was headed to Egypt, the place of trouble for his family. But that night he had a dream, and in his dream, God told him not to be afraid to go down to Egypt. You know, isn't it interesting how some spaces are sanctified to us as places where we encounter God? In this place, in Beersheba, God had redirected Jacob's life. For Jacob's family, this was the place of meeting. It was a nexus between heaven and earth, the place where people connected to God. Thinking about that, I thought we ought to pray that this place on the corner of Lockwood and Sanford Roads becomes the nexus between heaven and earth for thousands of people. We should, like Abraham did long before Jacob was born, dedicate this place to God and ask him to meet his people here. And stories will someday be told about the presence of God in this place, just as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob told stories about Beersheba. When Jacob arrived in Goshen, Egypt, his son Joseph was waiting for him. I can only imagine what that reunion was like. He had chosen from the word of his other sons to believe that his son was alive. And now his faith had become sight. Joseph hugged his dad, and, of course, he cried. And they stood there for a long time, holding on to each other, 25 years of emotion just pouring out of them. When they finally let go of each other, Jacob said to Joseph, Now I'm ready to die, since I've seen for myself that you're still alive. As an aside, you're not ready to die until you see for yourself that Jesus is alive. Only when you know that Jesus has overcome death will you be able to face it with confidence. But now that Jacob was ready to die, he lived for another 17 years. You know, you're not really ready to live until you're ready to die. And now that he was ready to die, he lived for 17 years. Jacob had Joseph for the first 17 years of Joseph's life and for the last 17 years of his own life. But Jacob did die, and his is the first big funeral that we read about in the Bible. It was as if he were a head of state. Uh, The nation observed a period of mourning. His body was mummified, as were the bodies of rich Egyptians and their rulers. And then he returned to his family burial spot in Canaan, where another elaborate ceremony was held. Now, remember, Jacob lived for 17 years in Egypt, which means the better part of two decades had passed since the brothers had been reunited and their differences reconciled. The family had settled in. They've gotten jobs. They're earning a living. The children have grown up and started their own families. Nowadays, at family reunions, everybody smiles at everybody. The proverbial hatchet has been buried. But even though that was true, when Dad died, the brothers felt uncertain about their position with Joseph. They got scared. Jacob's presence had provided them a degree of safety. But now that he was gone, what was to stop Joseph from taking revenge on them? 
Some of them attributed to Joseph motives that they would have held had they been in his position. If Joseph had done to them what they'd done to him, they would have been waiting for the day to exact their revenge. And it didn't help that they were living apart. They were off in Goshen. They only got to see Joseph once in a while, usually when he came to see Dad. Joseph was a busy man. They were kept busy with their work. They didn't spend much time together. And so they didn't get to look inside the man. They didn't get to see what made him tick. They didn't know his character. And so, of course, they read their own feelings into him. Neuroscientists have known for some time that the brain fills in gaps that the eye cannot see. Scientists call it filling in. We're not even aware of it, but our brain creates an image that our eyes don't actually see, or rather that's part of the blind spot that exists in our field of vision. Well, what our brains do for our eyes, our souls do in our relationships. We fill in what we can't see. The brothers filled their blind spot in with revenge. Now, look, we can do the same kind of thing when it comes to God that they did with Joseph. Unless we get to know him, see inside of him, know his character, we'll fill in the blanks about what he thinks concerning us. When we sin, we'll fill in disgust, disappointment. When we're afraid, we'll fill in apathy. When we're in need, we'll fill in indifference. That's why it's fundamentally important that we get to know God's character. Otherwise, we'll remake him in our own image. We'll believe things about him that are not at all true. That's how people fall into false teaching. Someone fills in the gap for them, and it makes sense. But they would have rejected that filler outright had they really been getting to know the character of God. I had a, a, a dear friend and mentor in my previous church named Ken West who first trusted Christ as his Lord and Savior when he was 35 years old. Growing up, he, he had never been introduced to God. He really didn't know anything about God. At the time he trusted in Christ, he was living on a farmstead in Idaho all by himself, and he immediately started soaking in the scriptures, just pouring over them getting to know the character of God. One day, a couple of men drove out to the farmhouse, and they talked to him about spiritual things. And he was really excited to meet men who cared about God and wanted to talk about him. And after about a half an hour or so, the men gave him some materials to read, and they went on their way. So when they left, he quickly picked up the Watchtower Press pamphlets, and he started reading. At the time, he didn't know anything about the Jehovah's Witnesses. What he did know was that that material didn't feed his soul. He didn't find the God and Father of Jesus in them, the God that he was getting to know. And so he threw it away. And he was saved from what I take to be serious error because he was getting to know the character of God. You and I must know the character of God. The brothers were filling in the gaps, and they were afraid that Joseph was going to make them pay for what they'd done. So knowing what we know about them and about their family, what do you think they did? They lied. This is Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, 
what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. Of course, Jacob had said no such thing. It's all a lie. And you know what Joseph did when he received the message? He cried. I think he was utterly disheartened. After 17 years of showing his brothers love, caring for them, providing for their needs, this is the way they thought of him. They still didn't trust him. I think God must understand that feeling perfectly well. After sending the message, the brothers went to meet Joseph in what I take to be a carefully orchestrated maneuver. They fall down before him and dramatically say, we're your slaves. Did they want to be his slaves? No. They were just afraid of him. They didn't trust him. And they didn't trust him because they didn't know him. And they didn't know him because life was busy, because they had responsibilities, because they lived apart, but mostly because they didn't choose to know him. In his sadness, Joseph says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Or to paraphrase, there is a God, boys, but I'm not him. Joseph had given up on trying to be God. He didn't have to make everything come out right. He didn't have to set people straight or put them in their place. And that was enormously liberating. He could hand his brothers over to God with absolute certainty that God would do what was right. The God he had come to know was able to do that. He had seen it firsthand. Joseph had spent too much time in prison already. He wasn't going to spend any more even in a prison of his own making. He didn't want to become a prisoner of the past, which is what would have happened if he tried to take God's place. What a wonderful thing it is to find out that God is God and that he's really good at it and that his seat is not vacant. Look at what Joseph says. It's really quite remarkable. You intended to harm me. I know that. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Joseph had learned a a liberating, life-changing secret. He had learned to base his actions on God's intentions, not the intentions of others. Most of us want to hurt people who want to hurt us. Malice gives birth to malice at a startlingly fast reproductive rate. Joseph knew his brothers wanted to hurt him, but because he was living out of a larger reality, out of what God intended, he wasn't controlled by the desire to hurt them back. Do you think that would be true of you? say, I don't think I could do that. My faith just isn't that strong. It's not that, my faith isn't that great. But it's not a matter of exercising some great faith in the true God. It's a matter of exercising true faith in the great God. The more we get to know him, 
And fortunately for us, he wants us to know him. The less we even think about our faith and the more we think about him. This majestic, great, loving, good God. And how do we get to know him? We meet him, grow to know him, learn to love and trust him through Jesus. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is, as St. Paul says, in the face of Christ, who is the image of God. This is one of the fundamental truths of the Bible. We get to know God as we get to know Jesus. No one has ever seen God. This is St. John. But God, the one and only, the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. That's Jesus. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That's Jesus. And that radiance shines brightest around the darkness of the cross. It's there that we get to know God and paradoxically that we get to know ourselves. And to know God in Jesus Christ is nothing short of eternal life. If you're not getting to know God, there is a way. There is a truth. There is a life. And it's in Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus, not just forgiving our sins, as great as that is, but in giving us new life and giving us yourself. Lord, I pray for, for some of us who are just starting to get to know you. How exciting that is. I pray that you'll reveal yourself in fresh ways every time they come to this place and many times besides. And I pray for those who haven't started to know you yet and so haven't started to know themselves yet either. I pray that you will you will give them the knowledge of yourself in the face of Christ. That you'll introduce yourself to them. And for all the rest of us, Lord, may our hearts rejoice at the thought of coming here to worship you, the one that we love and know and respect. I ask for all of these things in the name of your good son, Jesus. Amen. We're going to